Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Isaac Fitzgerald. He appears frequently on the Today Show, and is the author of the best-selling children's book, How to Be a Pirate, as well as the co-author of Pen and Ink and Knives and Ink, winner of an IACP award. His new book is Dirtbag, Massachusetts, which is published by our friends at Bloomsbury. Isaac, welcome to the program. Jason, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, and of course, love all that uh, Quail Books does down there in NC. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's an honor to have you here. And um, Isaac, in the introduction uh, to the advanced reading copy that I have here, you say that you sought comfort in bookstores, eventually became a bookseller yourself, and that that was a portal to so many other opportunities. Uh, Can you please tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I was raised um, in the south end of Boston in the 80s. It was a much different neighborhood then. Uh, Mm. But what that meant was that I was within walking distance of the Boston Public Library. And so Mm. I spent a lot of my time there, very appreciative to the librarians there who didn't like, you know, brush me away with a broom. Um, there were statues of these women sitting out front that I used to like make up whole imaginative stories around. Um, so I loved the Boston Public Library. Then moving out to kind of North Central Massachusetts, there was another public library there that meant a lot to me. But there's also this bookstore uh, that sadly has closed down in the years that have passed, but it was in Athol, Massachusetts. Um, and it was The Hobbit's Doorway. And those, the owners of those books, like they would let me come, I'd ride my beat up bike over there. And basically the unspoken feeling that I feel like we both had, which was like, you can sit here and read as long as you don't steal things. Mm -hmm. Like we're not expecting expecting you to buy much, but you can sit here and read as long as you don't take anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that kind of like, bookstores eventually became a space where I, one, of course, love to explore, would always discover new stories, all the things that people say about libraries and bookstores. But two, it became this kind of these havens, these kinds of ports in a storm for me, Um, a place that I could go if things were getting loud at home or I was just having a difficult day and I felt like I could spend time there. I could take up space there um, without, you know, basically causing any trouble. Um, Another side, like a side part of that, and then I'll get to the book selling, is... um, Eventually, you know, my parents, the one thing they gave, I mean, they, they gave me a lot in a lot of different ways, but something that they made very clear since my childhood was how important books were. Um, mm-hmm. And so even during some of our hardest years, mm-hmm. uh, when we weren't very communicative, we could always go to a bookstore together. And that, mm-hmm. that went through my 20, like truly We'd go, we'd split up off in three different directions, go to three different sections. Then we'd all pick up books and then we'd come back. And in a way, because we weren't ready to talk about the big conversations that I tackle in this book, those books that we would pick up became like the easy thing for us to talk about. So Mm -hmm. in that way, bookstores also kind of made a space for me and my family to communicate. But then to move on, uh, I I eventually, I wash up on the shores of San Francisco in my early 20s. 
which is when I get involved in 826 Valencia, which is a creative writing nonprofit for children, which is absolutely wonderful there. 826 is all throughout the country now. And uh, there I worked at the Pirate Supply Store, mm-hmm. which is the front. Basically, it's a nonprofit building, but it was zoned for commercial. So they just popped a Pirate Supply Store on the front, as almost as a joke, and it actually became a very good fundraising tool. Um, and in that store, of course, the, the 826 Valencia program was started by Dave Eggers, uh, his wife, Enda Levita, and, and the good folks at McSweeney's. Um, and, uh, and Nineveh Calgary, I believe was the original executive director, but anyways, they started, they sold McSweeney's books and eventually they sold different books by McSweeney's authors. And that eventually we had like basically a small library there. So I would get to kind of while away my days in this magical pirate store where I don't, I want to, I want to say they encouraged it, but they did not seem to mind if no one was in the store, if I just sat there and was reading all of those books. So I got to spend time behind the register, reading books, looking up to, of course, sell some books or some eye patches as people stroll through. So yeah, I, I, and, and to this day I can name, I'm so lucky to have friends at independent bookstores throughout the country. And I just love bookstores so much. Yeah, right on. And I have a lot of good memories uh, going to that store and sitting uh, there where I could look at the fish tank in a, a dark room. Yes, um, Jason, the fish theater, baby. Yeah, very, very cool. Uh, what years were you there, Isaac, at 826? I, I was there, I moved out in 2006 when I was yeah. 23. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, I, I was there kind of on and off for a bit, but I would say 2006 through 2009, Mm-hmm. Um, is when I would have been around there the most. Then I actually, I got a job at Zeitgeist, which was a much mm-hmm. different scene further down mm-hmm. Valencia Street. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was always in, involved in the 826 and McSweeney's crew. So I was in San Francisco from 2006 to uh, basically the beginning of 2014. Yeah, very good. So um, I used to manage the borders and Union Square um, there in San Francisco. And we, uh, we, I was there, so I... I I was in graduate school at North Carolina State University in Raleigh from 2006 to 2008. So I think I was there from like 2001 to 2006 and then from 2008 through, you know, 2012 or something. Um, so we were definitely there at the same time. Yeah. And, and so um, this is my story that I told you before we were recording that I was going to tell you about. So um, at Borders, we did a couple of things with 826 Valencia, though we never made it public because we were a huge corporate bookstore, um, et cetera. But we had done journal drives for the kids there um, and um, things of that nature. And there was a point in 2010, and I believe I was working with you, Isaac, um, just via email. I don't think we ever met or anything. I was going to um, your name is familiar as all get out. All right. Sorry. Keep going. Though. Yeah, it's all good. So in 2010, the San Francisco Giants won the World Series. And um, there was a poster that Dave Eggers drew um, that was, uh, you know, sold on McSweeney's website. But at Borders, we were selling them. We had contacted you and some other folks and we were selling a ton of these posters, like faster than we could then you could print them, I guess. Um, and I, you know, have all these memories of folks from 826 Valencia McSweeney's like driving straight from the printer to the door of borders on Powell street, where we would grab all the posters out of a trunk, um, throw them on the floor. People were grabbing them as we were moving them around. And, um, it was a very cool poster, but then borders entered chapter 11 bankruptcy. And, um, we, were not allowed to pay our bills and we still owed McSweeney's like, I don't know, a thousand bucks for the posters or something like that. And um, 
I got $500 from our district manager who I won't name because he says in this story, he looks like the evil corporate guy, um, <laughs> but a very cool guy who is now a published author. Um, I got $500 to pay half of it. And then I kept bothering them because the deal was not with borders. The deal was with me uh, for the posters. And I was like, please, can we pay this off? You know, I will pay it off with my own money. Um, and the district manager came back to me and said, Jason, you have to know when it's time to let things go. Um, and 99.9% .9 of the time, I think his advice would be a hundred percent correct. <laughs> um, but I told him I intend on staying in this industry and I'm going to run into these folks again. <laughs> and I don't want, uh, this $500, um, to be hanging over my head forever. <laughs> um, and then I spoke with, with all of you guys and you're like, no, don't worry about it. And I do need help finding another job. And I didn't cause I was about to get married and move anyway. But, um, anyway, I don't know if this is the moral of the story or not, but here we are 12 years later uh, talking about this book. And, and I told my friend, see, I told you I was going to run into that. <laughs> um, yeah. I but um, you I was going to run. Wait, <laughs> that's amazing. I remember that poster. What a wonderful story. Also just what a wonderful moment in San Francisco when the Giants won. That was just, yeah. just so much fun. It's, so much yeah, fun. And, and I feel like in certain cities and I'm not, you know, not mm. no comparisons here, but yeah. so, you know, there's a wildness that then, like San Francisco just felt very jolly. Like I just remember it was a very jolly day. Like everybody just was yeah. in a great, great mood. Um, and so that was wonderful too. That's amazing. I, it's nice to hear that you weren't <laughs> like, and then you all put the pressure on. And that, that we were like, okay, you need help on another job. And also it's interesting, sorry, just where my brain goes to think about yeah. the big box stores, mm -hmm. which at the time, right, were especially from independent uh, bookstores kind of seen as like, oh no, the enemy. And mm. now it's almost like box stores are now on the side of the local independence and it's everyone versus Amazon. Which yeah. Is a very yeah. And Barnes and Noble is kind of just a toy store at this juncture, even though, you know, they do, uh, they carry very different books than we carry here. We're, oh no, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, no. And, and that's, and that's part of it too, the different ways yeah. that they had to change to survive. Um, yeah. But I absolutely love one, that story, because that is exactly how everything was done. Mm. Uh, it all like back back of napkins, quick promises, um, yeah. and but because because at the root of it, right, was hey, this money is going to go to eight two six, which is this wonderful organization for children. Mm. Um, I don't know if you remember, but that was just in my mind. Uh, the remember when they when McSweeney's did the newspaper? Were you around for that? Yeah, and yeah. that was another again, same thing, just like driving straight from the printers, yep. any amount to people to hand sell them on the streets. Um, yeah. Yeah, we sold tons of those as well. Um, we had a good thing going, and it, one of my favorite experiences, again, uh, when I was at that Borders, was doing the journal drive for the kids at 826 Valencia, because then we did get um, a display at the store. It was a very large four-floor bookstore, and we got a display of some of the kids' work that we got to put out for customers to walk around and look at, which was, was really cool, That's and a really cool time. Yeah, and I still run into booksellers from San Francisco all the time, so. Um, yeah, I mean, again, it goes without saying, but great bookstores like you know you've got dog-eared books that like just yeah. so many wonderful wonderful bookstores the booksmith book passage it's just a great book town sure is well isaac let's now dive into this excellent book this collection of essays uh dirtbag massachusetts um you state in your opening essay that you were a happy accident 
or that from another perspective, you were born of sin. Uh, can you tell us more about these warring perspectives that one person's happy accident is another person's sin? Whew, yeah, I mean, I think that I think right there is in a little bit uh, the crux of the whole human experience. Mm. Um, but but as it relates to me is very much my parents were married, uh, you know, the first line of the book, my parents were married when they had me just to different people, which yeah. as you can see is that's a line I've been saying a lot longer than I wrote it down. I realized I had a little bit of a fun yet maybe a little bit, oh, what's going on there and a little morose joke in just that simple line. Mm-hmm. So they were married when they had me just different people. And that was the feeling that I had as a child growing up, knowing that from a very early age was that in, in many ways, um, mm-hmm. I knew that I knew that that was very lucky. I knew that just just my existence was very lucky. Uh, you know, I knew that my parents, um, you know, they had their hard moments, especially later on in my childhood. But early on, I had a lot of happy memories, and I think they did their best, despite our circumstances, to make sure I was living a very joyous life, especially in those early years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where the happiness is. But I was also raised within the Catholic Church. Um, in, in this case within something called the Catholic worker, which is almost a very socialist, uh, you know, basically what AG6 does for young kids, the Catholic worker tries to do for homeless people and or, uh, unhoused people and incarcerated people, um, and including my parents and myself growing up. But so that, and that was a wonderful part of Catholicism, but also my mother works at the Cathedral of the Holy Cross where I kind of got this much more opulent, kind of that bigger, the, the Catholicism that probably most people think of when I start to talk about it. And that is when I really, you know, very early on, I, had a, I understood the concept of original sin very early on, uh, you know, because churches are so good at educating the youth. Uh, I, I had a really strong concept of, of moralistically what the church viewed as right and wrong, especially in those, you know, early years of the 80s. And I, I, I came to realize, oh, my, you know, not only was I born out of wedlock, but I was born, I am technically a bastard, um, but I was born out of wedlock while they were, ma- they were in wedlock with other people. And so I started to realize as much as I was like a pretty happy-go-lucky kid, there was this feeling of like, oh, like my mere existence, right? That's the idea of original sin. The sin of the father can fall to the son. This, you know, sin of the parent can fall to the child. Uh, mm-hmm. Just this idea that I... I maybe just in my very existence was wrong or evil in some way. And that was just, you know, a lot for a young brain to grapple with. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Isaac, you write that both of your parents were smart, itchy, unsteady people who, as you alluded to earlier, had read too many books if such a thing were possible. And then you write, I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, <laughs> please tell us, Isaac, why is it possible to read too many books? And can you tell, uh, or how can you tell when someone might be a person who has read too many books? Too many books. Um, I, to be honest, I think that's actually, it's, it's more of a throwaway line. And I don't want to say throwaway line, but it's definitely more of a joke uh, yeah. of me poking fun at them and at myself and at so many of us, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's something that I, I hope shines through, especially to yourself uh, in this book is the ways in which, you know, books, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things, like I said, that my parents handed to me. Um, mm-hmm. Books are almost a form of religion. They can be a form of vocation. They can, and, and just like almost all religion, just like what I'm saying with the Catholic church, right? There are certain things in there that's absolutely great. Like, uh, you know, 
help your fellow neighbor, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then there's this, sometimes you can go too far with it. Now, in terms of reading books, I don't actually think there's such a thing as reading too many books. But I think what I meant in that is that my parents, you know, my, my mother came from a family of farmers. My father's parents worked um, in a mill in New Bedford. And I think what I mean by that, and it's, again, it, it gets back to, sorry, that, that crux we were talking about before, how things can be both wonderfully good and sometimes also a little ominous or, or bad, which is, I think it made, it opened their minds up. It made them very adventurous. It made them incredibly exploratory. I think reading books, right, gives you this want for life, this love for life. Oh, let's go and experience all these emotions that I'm reading about on the page. I want to live these like, you know, you, oh, what's, what's a boat? I don't know, but I want to figure it out. I want to go out on one, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think what I'm poking fun at that a little bit is that my parents were these very smart people who were definitely in their own way, which I would come to realize I was doing myself later in life, trying to escape what they viewed as their small childhoods, as their, where they're coming from. Mm. And books were very much the first step towards that. I think that's why it was, they, it was so important to both of them. Why they loved books so much was because they made them realize there was this larger world out there that they could try and escape to. But then what I'm saying, I guess a little bit, is it also can be like, okay, well, should I settle for this life? Should I settle for this life, right? All of a sudden you start to get all these options. I think that's what I'm poking a little bit of fun at is because I think, you know, my parents, when they met, they were actually at uh, divinity school, which mm -hmm. is, you know, they're, they're basically there to study uh, religion. And, mm -hmm. and while there, I think there's a part of them that was like, oh, but what about the temptation part of things? What about this? You know, not to get too into it, it's my parents. But uh, I, I think that's the way in which I think it sparked their imagination. And that is why it's such an important gift that they gave me is like, look, you're going to read all these wonderful books that can take you some really fabulous places. But like, there's, there's also something, I don't think it's about reading too many books, but it's also about gauging, you know, what your best choices might be. Yeah, and I totally understand. I've had somebody say to me in conversation, like, whoa, dude, you read a lot of books. And I've had to be like, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to draw a parallel between your experience you're telling me about and Proust. That's just how my brain works. <laughs> um, yeah, but I totally get it. Well, it's um, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I just got a total tangent. That's funny, Bruce, because I was just saying today, uh, for the first time in a very long time, I had a Dr. Pepper. And when yeah. I was a kid, that's what we used to drink, Dr. Pepper, yeah. or like off-brand Dr. Pepper and smoke really badly rolled joints. And mm -hmm. sorry, sorry, this is totally just a random tangent. But truly, yeah. I was like, wow, Dr. Pepper is like my Madeline. Like, this yeah. is like, <laughs> it's bringing right. me back to my childhood. Yeah, man, no doubt. Well, um, good. Thank you very much, Isaac. My son... Van uh, just turned six years old last week. And ever since he has been born, um, you know, with the exception of the COVID season, every year we go to a major league baseball game. Uh, it was his spring break a couple of weeks ago. We drove up to Baltimore to see the Orioles versus the Brewers. Um, every time we go, someone asks if it is his first game. And you write that you must have had 100 first games uh, since it is baseball season. Can you tell us this story about having 100 first games? And then can you maybe talk about why baseball or the tradition of going to a baseball game is so important to so many fathers and sons? Yeah, absolutely. And, and to be honest, I'm like, just for the record, ecstatic that it's baseball season. And I want to be very clear about this. Mm -hmm. I never played as a kid. Yeah. Um, I probably like this is this is going to be one of the things that gets me in trouble, if I'm being honest. 
<laughs> I probably can't name a lot of players on the mm. team. And I'm also a really big believer in the song root, root, root for the home team. So when we were out in San Francisco, let me tell you, mm. I would go to Giants games mm. and I would cheer for the Giants. But on yeah. Wednesdays across the bay yep. over in oh. Oakland Stadium, they had dollar dogs days, $2 yeah. beers and $1 hot dogs. And I would yeah, always yeah. Work, and then you root for the A's as hard as possible, which I listen, especially Dirtbag, Massachusetts. I know there are a lot mm. of Red Sox fans out there. So let's talk about this story. Mm -hmm. which is so i grew up in boston mm -hmm. and uh this is this is definitely one of my favorite memories being a kid is that my dad this was back before boston had won you know they were still in, under the curse they hadn't won any championships in a very long time mm -hmm. so it was not like today where the stadium is always sold out and you have to you know sell your first born to get mm -hmm. a ticket um <laughs> And so there was often room at Fenway. And so back in those days, I think they still keep this, this part of the tradition up. Uh, mm. They sell standing room only tickets. Mm. And they were at the time incredibly cheap. And the idea was, you know, you're kind of way in the back, but you could still take in the game. You know, mm. you could still watch the game. And so what my dad would do is he would buy those standing room only tickets. We'd go in. And then he'd let a few innings go by. And, and, and it makes sense too, because probably at that point, I'm, like, I'm very small. So my, my, I'm sure my legs start getting a little tired. I start getting a little like, man. And so then he would pick me up and he would walk us close, sometimes so, so close. And he'd just get us down there by the field. And there were always, like I said, it was different days, there were, uh, different times, but there were always kind of empty seats down there. And so they could, he could either get, like usually it would be like maybe somebody that had season tickets that just hadn't shown up that day. Sometimes he had a pretty good gauge of, all right, it's three, three, three innings in. These people probably, you know, these seats probably aren't sold. But he'd always sit us down and just, my, you know, my dad has a little bit of that gift of gab. You know, he'd make, mm. be smiling to everyone, everything would work. But eventually uh, people, people, you know, they're secure. Even back then, there was security at Fenway. And so somebody would come and check the tickets. And that is when my dad would turn and he would say to them, oh, I'm so sorry. We were in the standing room only. We can go back. No problem. It's just my son. He's getting a little tired. And like the, the real thing, it's his first game. It's his first game. And so he, I heard him use that line over and over and over. And I knew, I knew enough, like I, even at a very young age, I just knew to keep my mouth shut mm -hmm. and it, it always worked. I, I like, I truly don't have a memory. And here's the, here's the thing who like, it could have also been that the security guards also knew what was going on. They seen mm -hmm. like, who knows, but I just, I don't have a memory of us ever having to go back to the standing room only uh, section. And that was a beautiful thing. And to be honest, baseball was a way, kind of like we were talking about with books. Um, we lost we lost baseball for a little while, but but now in, in our older years, I still love to like just a few years back, we went to a game together pre-COVID uh, mm -hmm. and it was such a fond memory. So we were, you know, we're kind of getting baseball games back, but it's just such a wonderful way, in my opinion, to, to answer the second half of your question of why it's important, you know, for me, it's about, spending time with another human being in a way it's a lot like going for a long walk with somebody mm -hmm. which is to say there is something else to do <laughs> in this case it's watch a baseball game right when you're walking it's just you know the the, the scenery is changing there's other things so there's things to comment on there's things and then that makes a space for maybe what might be a more important conversation or a more important connection and so what I love about a baseball game is I, I just, I love how long they are. 
I love how kind of, you know, it's not that super fast paced. You got to be paying attention all the time. And it, it, it makes the space for, Hey, you know, I don't really feel like getting into it right now. So we're going to talk about the game, you know, or maybe it's, Hey, I've, I've got something on my mind and that's a place where you can kind of open it up and have these discussions. And then of course, there's just the natural human things about it, right? Like it's baseball season starting right now. I'm so excited to get to a game and it's just like, that means spring is here. That means the sun is coming back, especially if you're on the East Coast. That's such an important thing. You know, that means fresh cut grass and just certain things that like bring you an easy joy. I mean, don't get me wrong. I know ticket prices continue to go up a bit, but even then, like it is still one of the more affordable of, you know, the sports arena type situation mm-hmm. that you can go to, especially if you're willing to sit in the way back. And in some stadiums, like, giant stadium uh which what i feel like for me it was at&t park but now its name has changed yet again yeah it's had three or four different names yeah anyways but giants uh you you know or baltimore is another example of this uh Mm -hmm. with the brick um but uh but at some stadiums the further back you sit the cheaper your seats actually you're getting a surprise bonus which in san francisco is the incredible view of the bay if you're up there uh Mm saying you know there's there's just certain certain aspects of it that the financial, uh, you know, the low bar, basically, financially, the the fact that they take so long and, and you get to just sit out there in the sun and the fact that you have something else to talk about that makes room for, for other conversations. It's just, it's it's so thrilling to me. I love it so much. And I'm glad you do that with your son. Can I ask, do you have some great memories of, of you and him at ballparks? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, um, we started by going to Giants games when they were playing the Washington Nationals. And then, because uh, that's, that's the closest ballpark to us in Raleigh, North Carolina. But then um, one year we went to Baltimore to take him to like the aquarium and stuff. And the Orioles were playing a series against the nationals. And we stayed in this hotel that's attached to Camden yards where you can see down into the field and the Orioles beat the nationals, both games we went to. So then he just, my son decided he was an Orioles fan and I wanted to say, don't do it. You're setting yourself up for a lifetime of misery, but um, that's just for oh, this is here's the thing. I, of course, was a Red Sox fan. Yeah. I was growing up in Boston, right? Yeah. Now, here's a very, very, I, ooh, I'm like, certain, my dad's like, you know, keep me out of certain parts of the conversation. And I feel like I might be betraying him right now to say it. But people will know this, especially if you live on the seacoast. As you go, you know, don't get me wrong, he grew up in Massachusetts proper, right? But there is a bit of a New York divide that creeps up through Connecticut. And so his dad, actually was a Yankees fan. So my father was raised as a Yankees fan. So mm. he was a Yankees fan who used to bring his kid to Boston Red Sox games because he knew how much I loved the sport. But so mm. we too, it's one of my favorite photos of us as children. My dad's wearing his Yankees cap and he's holding me and uh, and I'm wearing my Red Sox cap. So one, I love the Orioles Nationals thing. Two, real quick, mm. sorry. But I was also in DC, living in mm. DC when Nash- the Nationals first started, which mm. they didn't even have their own place yet. And yeah. that, this is another one of those wonderful stories, kind of like the 100 first games. I absolutely loved it because at that point, they just needed people in the stadium. Yeah. They just needed the stadium not to look empty in the cameras. Mm-hmm. So tickets were like whew, two bucks, five bucks. It was ve- and like very good ticket. And mm-hmm. they let us, and part of me is like, I can't even believe this is true, but I, mm-hmm. I remember they let us bring coolers in. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So we, they didn't even need us to buy the food, which is how they make so much revenue once they get going. But in that first year, we were able to bring our own coolers in. And that, that was such a fond memory for me too. That's in my like late teens, early twenties that I was down in DC and just mm. go to Nats games in those early years where it was incredible. So tell your son, I'm, you know, I, I wish he was a Nationals fan myself, but, but also yeah. for Orioles. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't know. Thank you, Isaac. Listeners. We're going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Isaac Fitzgerald. The Bookend Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM allows you to buy audiobooks directly through your favorite local independent bookstore like Explore Booksellers. You continue to put money back into your local economy and help local bookstores thrive please navigate to libro.fm and enter the promo code bookin that's b-o-o-k-i-n in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your local independent bookstores in the process i'm back with isaac fitzgerald author of dirtbag massachusetts which is published by our friends at bloomsbury isaac I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about a child's perspective about being poor. And I ask this because when you write about this, you write that no one told you you were supposed to be miserable. Children, of course, especially very young children, don't know what it means to be poor or to be rich. It's really all about happiness, right? Uh, Can you unpack all of this for us a bit? Absolutely. Great question. Um, For me, it's interesting. My happiest years were mm. these early years. And of course, that's just because things were a little bit more peaceful between my parents. Um, it might have also had to do with the fact that we were living in, in the city of Boston and mm. then kind of move up to a, uh, to a much more rural space. Although even then, at first, I remember playing outdoors and how much I loved the outdoors. And, you know, when we lived in, on Mass Ave, I basically was not allowed to, to leave the block. Uh, and all of a sudden I could, you know, take my bike places and then explore the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but for the financial aspect of it, you know, I, I was raised, uh, a lot of time was spent. We were, we were in a, a halfway house eventually called John Larry house. Um, but a lot of my time was spent in the soup kitchen called Haley house. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know, it was basically uh, a place for unhoused people uh, to, to try and get back up on their feet and there were free meals and there's just a big sign that basically said, you know, no drugs, no alcohol, but that was, you know, those were basically the rules. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, it was, like I said, it was Catholic workers. So there, it was a very faith-based organization, but at the same time, there wasn't proselytizing, you know, nobody, it's not like you had to pray to get your soup or anything like that. Um, and so, I, I just remember what it meant for me as a kid was that I was surrounded by all of these people with incredible stories. Now, of course, some folks didn't want to talk to a young kid that was running around and that was absolutely understandable. There's a lot of stuff going on in their lives, but some people would be absolutely thrilled uh, for my attention, um, for me, you know, for me to talk to them or to listen to them. And so I became very, like, I think, truly for me, a lot of my background is in collecting people's stories. My first couple of books with Wendy McNaughton, an incredible illustrator who did salt, fat, acid, heat, um, 
but I did a book called Pen and Ink and Knives and Ink. And those were collecting the stories behind people's tattoos. And I think where I first learned to ask that, like, so tell me what this is about, mm-hmm. was literally in Haley House, talking to all these different people from all these different backgrounds about their lives, about their stories, about what brought them to Haley House. Um, and so those were wonderful moments in my mind, you know, and they're warm memories that I still have to this day. Whereas I think if you say to somebody, oh, a kid in Boston in a soup kitchen living in a situation uh, where his parents are unhoused and trying to find, you know, like all of a sudden that, that can be a very sad story. Mm-hmm. Um, but but in, my, in my memory of it, those are some of the warmest years of my childhood, that sense of community that came through there. Uh, and then there's also like, right, right, there's the school aspect to it. Now, an interesting thing for me is that in those early years when I was in Boston, uh, because of the Catholic worker, I was able to go to a, um, a Catholic school in Jamaica Plain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a Catholic school, I believe it has since closed down, but it's called Our Lady of Lords. And it's out there in Jamaica Plain, another neighborhood, much like the South End, that's very different than it was uh, when I was there. Um, but so we wore uniforms. Uh, I just, I remember I had one clip on tie and like, you know, a blue shirt. And, and so, uh, in that space, there wasn't a real awareness of people coming from different financial backgrounds. You know, I do, you know, pack lunches, don't get me wrong. I remember, I remember definitely having to do some songs and dances to try and like get somebody split like a fruit pie with me. Like, you know, mm-hmm. they had, I can't remember the brand, but they had it come with two little apple turnovers in the, in the packaging. Um, but then, so that, but then when we move out to, to North Central Massachusetts, that is when I start going to public school. That is, that is when I start, and, I, and just for the record, love public school, big fan, but I'm just talking about that one recollection of, oh, wait, may, maybe that kid's getting clothes from someplace different than I'm getting, you know, mm. like that, ooh, that, what's new? You know, I remember that, especially around like, ooh, like really nice new shoes. Like you can sense it, you know, you can see it. And I think, um, but, but mainly the, the area I was in, most people were coming from a pretty rough background. So even then it wasn't totally dawning on me. And when it really, really probably became something that was at the front and center of my attention is I got a, as, as you know, in the book, but I get a, a scholarship to a boarding school. And that is probably when I, so, which, what are we talking there? That's 14 years old. That's actually a long time to go, but basically because it's probably a better way to say this, but sticking with my own class, I mm. really hadn't been aware of the, the true financial disparities that, that could be involved. Because also I was raised that my parents, we didn't own a television. There was, you know, there were magazines and stuff. So I'm not saying that there weren't like, ooh, someday I want to be like Joe Camel. Like I knew I had aspirations and stuff, but I, I remember getting to boarding school and that was the first place where I became very aware of like, oh, there are people that have a lot mm. more. Um, but at 14, right, you're, you're kind of on your way to becoming an adult. So for me, it's one, it's one of the things that I absolutely love. And I try to keep in mind because I'm a kid's book author, too. And so I interact with, I go to different schools and, and I talk to different classrooms and stuff. And I, I really try to keep it in mind that for the most part, a lot of this is adults bringing their things into children's lives. Um, now, of course, if we're talking about a level of like, you're not, you know, if there's food scarcity, um, you're you're not getting, um, you know, if you, if you are unsheltered or something, you know, then it, then it can become quite, quite hard. But because of the situation I was in, because of the community of the Catholic worker, you know, we, 
were at a soup kitchen. There was food available. So there was, there was a part of me that was just completely unaware in a way of the situation that I was in. And it wasn't until I got more life experience that I could look back on it and really realize what was going on. And still even then, sorry to, to go on and on, but still even then, it's, it's a wild thing for me because as far as looking at my childhood, those years are my happiest years. Whereas things went really south during different aspects of my life. Um, and that is still a wild thing to wrap my mind around. Mm, absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer, Isaac. Um, I'm now going to have a couple of specific questions about your parents. Uh, first, your father. Um, you write when you were writing about a moment of time when your parents lived in different places that you missed your father in a way that you missed something you don't know is missing. Uh, what do you mean by this, Isaac? Yeah. Um, again, it gets that point of what I'm conscious of and what I'm not conscious yeah. of. And truly, what I'm speaking to, and, and, I'm, and, I, I, and I thought about for a lot, what I'm speaking to is an ache that I felt mm. during that time. But there was no, it wasn't like I was crying myself to sleep at night. Mm. I wasn't, um, I wasn't, I wasn't just like, it was almost like I couldn't admit to myself that he wasn't there most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, because nobody had said, you know, now again, hindsight 2020, as an adult, I can look down and I can say, oh, my parents were separated. Mm -hmm. My parents were doing basically a trial run of, you know, they, what they told me was the jobs were there. So he's mm -hmm. got to stay there for the work and we're going out here. Um, and, and to be honest, that, even that, that's the complexity of being a human, right? That might've been 20% true, right? But nobody yeah. sat me down and said, hey, we're separate. So I didn't even know I was, I could be missing him because I'm like, okay, he's not, but he was, but he was, he was mm -hmm. gone. So I think that's what I mean by like missing something you don't even know you're supposed to be missing. Because like in this way, I had an ache in that time. I knew that I was missing my father's presence. I knew yeah. that I was missing. I knew that there once used to be something very full and abundant, which is my father used to go for long runs and he would take me on my cruddy bike riding next to him. Um, like I said, we did a lot of activities that didn't cost money, basically, surprise. So he used to have this beat up truck. We would drive outside the city and go camping. Like I remember these early childhood memories of spending a lot of time with him. And then all of a sudden he just wasn't there most of the time. But again, nobody, it's, it wasn't like he'd gone to prison or that he had died or that, you know, many of the things that had happened to her, that he had just left many of the things that I have friends whose fathers that happened to them. It's more, it was just more this like, okay, so he's still here. He's still in our life. Nobody's really telling me anything's changed, but I just knew he wasn't around anymore. So I had, I had this ache. Um, and, and so that's, that's what I was, I was speaking to there. And what's, what's tough. And you know, this, this is, I'm sure something me and my father will continue to talk about into our life is that even by the time he does, like they do kind of decide, like they come back together at that point is when I'm almost leaving the house, you know? So we mm -hmm. almost, we, we kind of lost these years um, without me really even realizing what was happening. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, money or no, I'd probably rather go on a long run or bike ride than anything else. So um, yeah, good times. I mean, well, this, no, this is, this is, sorry, real quick. My, yeah. Another thing that I love to do now is uh, we we're talking about baseball games, but I, I compared it to the walk because that's the other thing I love to do. I love to walk now. I, I have a sub stack where I write about taking walks with other writers. Um, it's called mm -hmm. walk it off. And 
it's amazing to me because we think we come to these things on our own. But like the fact of the matter is, is all I, my, you know, who loved to walk, you know, who ooh, lived for walking, like my dad, my dad, that's what he used to do. He'd take me on these mountain hiking trips. And so it's just this interesting thing. Like, I'm like, ah, my own person. I'm a, it's like, no, actually there are these things you inherit, whether you're even aware of them or not. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Isaac. Well, speaking of people, um, sitting you down and telling you something, uh, when you were eight years old, Isaac, your mother told you, uh, that she almost aborted you. Why did she do this, Isaac? And what did it do to you over the course of the rest of your life? And also, what does this say, if anything, about parents who, instead of being their child's quote unquote parent, they try to be their child's friend? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to speak to why she told me that, mm-hmm. um, and, and I, I try to be full of generosity and grace. Yeah when I talk about my mother, because mm-hmm. one, I just think being a human in this world is hard. Yeah. Two, I think being a woman in this world is hard. Uh, and three, I think being a woman in that time, uh, especially for all intents and purposes, a single mother, mm-hmm. uh, in that time where they're, you know, the, our society doesn't do a ton to support families that are having a hard time like that. And, you know, I wish that they, and I hope we're going in the direction of, of doing more, but especially during those years, it was just, I think she was very lonely. So I try to be full of grace when I talk about it. So to take a crack at it, because only she will know in her heart why she told me that uh, at the the age of eight. But I think, I I think, I think she was proud Mm-hmm. that she was still fighting to raise me. Mm. And I think what she was saying was that in almost in a way, not that she wanted me to know, I don't think she was even, you know, cause of course, if she was truly aware that I was there and yeah. she would be aware that I was a child, I think it was almost as if she was talking to herself mm-hmm. to say like, oh, it could have been better. My life could have been better mm-hmm. if I maybe decided not to have this child. But in a way, by acknowledging that she was trying to also acknowledge that she was still there struggling and doing her best to be the best mother she could be. Yeah. And I think that was coming from a place of mental illness. And, and she, she, she and I have had a lot of, she's read the book for the record. Uh, yeah. And we've had a lot of discussions around this now. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it was coming from a place of mental illness. And she would say that as well. I think it's coming from a place of um, loneliness. Mm-hmm. I, think she, I think she was very, very alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, she, I was becoming her sounding board. I was becoming her confidant to use, to use that language you're just talking about. Mm-hmm. And to the friendship aspect of it, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Cause pa- parent child dynamics are so hard, right? Like what have we talked about during this whole talk? We talked about my dad taking me to baseball games. We talked about my dad and, and riding bikes, right? There's a lot of really tough stuff in here about my dad. A lot of things that my dad did wrong, far worse than, than my mother. Mm-hmm. But I think in a way, the way that society's built is dads in a way get to be the buddy mm-hmm. and therefore almost get forgiven as like a buddy. Ah, oh, buddy, you, you know, you get in a fight on the playground. Now you and, I almost said the name of the guy I used to fight. Anyways, but now you and so-and-so are now pals. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in a way, sometimes it can even bring you closer together. Whereas, whereas I think we can be extra hard on mothers because they're, they're, they're supposed to be all encompassing. They're supposed to be 
taking care of everything and being so much and so strong and, and, and to be one thing, right. To be, to be a mother, which is to say, to be everything. But so that's the interesting thing here is I think despite all the things that she said to me that should not have been said to a child, um, in a way I was almost becoming her friend in, in this very different way. And probably like you're saying, yes, absolutely an inappropriate way. Uh, and what would I, I, you know, I would say to both children and parents of all, like we all know, like boundaries are actually so important. And, and with the building of those true, really strong, healthy relationships can be built. Uh, so I'm, I want to be very clear here. I'm not saying do it the way that we did it, but I'm going to say this at the end of this, because I think it's important to say mm. my mother and I have been through so much. Yeah. Um, but I would argue our relationship now is the strongest that it's, it's ever been. And yeah. I would say our relationship is one of actual unique friendship. Mm -hmm. you know in a way that like and don't get me wrong my parents and this is why my parents are still together and yeah. now we still I mean I was estranged for a very long time I effed off to the east coast I'm sorry to the west coast for yeah. almost a decade but now that I've been back and I've been back for a few years now and and we're starting to have the conversations that are at the heart of this book I, I can sometimes even see it we, we the three of us will hang out and I can see my dad almost is like jealous of the shorthand that me and my mother had you know, but again, that's because it came from a lot of hard work and on her end, uh, an openness to discuss the, the things that had gone wrong in, in, in my childhood, which is, is so important that she's, you know, it's, it's a line that I have in the book. How would you feel if somebody took all the worst things you did 30 years ago yeah. and wrote them all down, you know, because so she's a different person. She's changed. She's grown just the way that we're all supposed to be changing and growing. And so my relationship with her at this point is, don't get me wrong, still very, very complicated, but so, so good. Um, and, and so, so yeah, I, what, I, I, what, I, what I would say to parents that want to be their children's friends, absolutely from time to time, but, but, but don't get lost in, in also understanding the importance of being a parent and, and knowing that, you know, it's, it's going to be up to you to set those boundaries because a, kid, a, kid, a kid's just figuring it out. A kid doesn't even yeah. really know what a boundary is, you know? Um, and so, but, but also I would say nobody does it perfectly. Nobody bats a thousand to keep with the baseball, baseball metaphors. Uh, yeah. And I just feel very lucky. It's funny. This is the first time I've ever said this. I didn't even realize this is turning into a therapy session. Uh, I feel very lucky to have the mother I have now. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Isaac. And we're going to return to a couple of things you said in just a moment for our final question. But first, um, I do want to mention the second essay in your book where you're writing about Catholicism and you write about an incident that happened in a confessional. Um, later, at the end of this essay, you write that there is always a place to talk to God, even if it is a God that you don't believe in. Um, how, Isaac, did this moment I mentioned in confession lead to a disbelief in God? Yeah. Um, I mean, do you mind if I speak openly and freely about it? I don't know. Like, Not at all. Please do. Ba ba basically, at a, at, a, at a very young age, one probably would argue too young an age, um, mm -hmm. uh, but, but consensually, uh, a, a woman who was older than I was probably around, uh, not probably, 17 years old and I was 12, mm -hmm. uh, we, we went into the woods and, and engaged in oral sex. Um, it was mm -hmm. my first sexual experience. Um, mm. it was as clumsy as those usually go. 
And, uh, but later what happened is I then came to a confessional in, in Boston um, and, and confessed. And uh, after confessing to, you know, at that point I was at 12 is when I was already taking a turn. So I was stealing cigarettes from the local store. I was stealing booze from the local packy, uh, mm-hmm. package store. I was stealing, uh, let's see here. I was stealing booze from the package store. I was stealing cigarettes from, uh, from, from the local store. And I was doing a lot of shoplifting, sorry. Um, and so like I was confessing all these things, like I was confessing all these like very normal young person things uh, and the priest didn't seem to care at all. And then once I built up to this, the, just the whole mood in the confessional really, really shifted. And just for the record, those that are keeping track, it was one of those old school confessionals where there's a metal lattice in between us. I couldn't see him. Um, mm. And then he, he started asking, he basically started fishing for descriptions. Um, to this day, I have no idea if that was something for him to think about later. If you know, like, I, I don't get to, I don't want to make up any stories. You know, I yeah. have no idea what was going on in that booth. There was heavy breathing. There is totally a possibility that that person was then, um, you know, touching themselves. I don't know if I'm using all the appropriate terms here, but mm-hmm. um, that, that built on, I met my friend Liam and his mother was just, didn't believe in God. And she was the first person who I ever, I'm sorry, I shouldn't use real names like that. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> I can edit it out. Yeah, sorry. Also, just for the record, while we're here in the, in the safe space, I, I said package store and they're called packies in mm-hmm. New England because yeah. it's a package store. But there is also a racial connotation with that word, which has nothing to do with the New England part mm-hmm. of it. I just want to highlight mm-hmm. that. It's like different. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I met I met my friend. The name the name in the book is Connor, and I met his mother. Mm-hmm. And his mother is probably the first person that really didn't believe in God, and that was the mm-hmm. first person I ever had met like that. And that was probably the first per- time I even realized that was an option, right? So there mm-hmm. was a mix of what felt like almost a, a betrayal. Um, and this, what's supposed the confessional is supposed to be a very like an incredibly safe space, um, and 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 instead it became a very uncomfortable space, uh, yeah. saying it lightly. And then and then meeting Connor in the book's uh, mother, who who kind of opened me up to the possibility that that God didn't exist. And that was the first time I ever ever really contemplated that. And again. At that point, not long after, uh, a couple of years later, I'm 14, I get a scholarship, I go to boarding school and all of a sudden my Sundays are my own. I yeah. don't have to go to church. So that's, that's how that slowly built. But what's interesting about it to me um, is that I realized my relationship to whatever concept of you want to call God was built through this institution. And now even, and parts of this institution or what has come from this institution can be very, very good. Again, Dorothy Day. Catholic worker. There's some good work out there being done. Um, Mm -hmm. But then there's also this much larger, for lack of a better word, corporate institution uh, where a lot of things can can turn very gnarly and very dark. Um, And what what I realized is, so for a very long time, it was very easy for, oh, I don't believe in God. That was part. And what's happening is as I get older, I actually see that my connection with again however you want to think of the concept of god whether that just means the universe or just not being alone or understanding that basically everything is very very um 
is is very very uh i wish there's a better i should have a bigger word to say random but mm -hmm. uh, arbitrary it can be very very arbitrary uh and life can feel very very arbitrary but there is also just magic there's beauty there's you know sitting at a baseball game or there's putting your feet in the water there's being on a boat or near the ocean or walking in the woods and there's something there's something about wanting to have gratitude whether that is through a connection to God, whether that is a connection to the universe, there's something about wanting to show gratitude, to wanting to show thanks, to wanting to rejoice in the life that we're given that all of a sudden is now growing very, very important to me. And so at the end of the essay, that's, that's kind of what I'm speaking to is if you were to ask me right now, Isaac, do you believe in God? I don't know if I have a very strong, at least philosophical answer mm -hmm. to you, but I do know how my heart feels when I go mm -hmm. for a walk in the woods and for that, I'm grateful. So, so that, and then what's beautiful is that can't be taken away. Absolutely. Thank you, Isaac. Well, we have only touched upon the beginning of this book really, but I have to tell you, uh, this is a book that I hope our customers pick up and really dive into. I picked it up because I knew of you and had worked with you briefly over emails and such and hoped I could speak with you, but I left this book really feeling like you were a remarkable, remarkable person, Isaac, with a penchant for self-reflection, valuable self-reflection that I think a lot of people will find value in. Uh, I do want to ask you one more question before our time is up, and I have only touched upon the beginning of your book again, really, but I want to fast forward to the end. Um, yeah. Your father... Um, you mentioned that your mother had read this book. Your father, when talking about your writing, asked if he was going to be arrested for child abuse. Um, and you think he was both kidding and not kidding. Um, my question is, has your father read your book now? I know your mother has. Does he still wonder about this? And do you think your book, Isaac, will help him and them understand what you have been through? Or perhaps more importantly, has it helped you to understand what you have been through? Yeah, well, let me let me start with the last one first, which has absolutely helped, yeah. helped me. It has been, and it has been a life's work because of mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Um, and that's why it's, it, it has taken, you know, you've read it. It's slim, mm -hmm. uh, but it took a long time for mm -hmm. me to grapple with the things that I had to grapple with. And, I, and, and, and I'm very happy that the book came out now um, because there is a part of me that knows if I wrote this book, say, when I was 25, it mm -hmm. would be so much more angry, so much less forgiving. Um, and I think one of the beauties or maybe even tricks of the universe mm -hmm. uh, is that as we grow older, we come to understand things that we thought we knew so sure when we were younger, mm -hmm. uh, we, we start to see them for the complexities that they are. Um, as, to, as to my father, uh, I do not think he is worried about that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that it's, it, I mean, to be honest, it means a lot to me that you bring up that line because I think that is such a perfect encapsulation of it which is he's so smart um, and he's, he's, he's very thoughtful. And, and, and again, just despite the hardships we've had, he can be very loving, um, but, but what he also is, and he's humor, he's, he's got a really good dry humor to him. Um, so ha, ha, I know that my mother has read the book. I believe that my father has as well. Um, mm. My mother and I have had a lot of correspondence and we've talked a lot about it. Yeah. My father wrote me one loving, incredibly dry, humorful email. Mm. 
And a lot of that's personal, so I won't share it all, but I can share with you a couple of my favorite lines, mm -hmm. which is, um, I probably shouldn't have given you so much Bukowski to read at such a young age. Because mm -hmm. he, was, he would get, man, I was reading books that were way, because he would just give them to me. Mm -hmm. uh, we mentioned earlier, I, I'm pretty sure this is in the book, but I can't always remember what's been cut and what hasn't been. Uh, mm -hmm. But when, when, we, when he was living in Boston and we had moved out to North Central Mass, he, mm -hmm. he recorded um, The Lord of the Rings on yeah. tape and would mm -hmm. send them to me, just, just to show the fondness aspects of them too, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but but the other the other line that I just he, he just he just said well listen you can't say I gave you a boring life yeah <laughs> and I think that's it I think that's I mean that's that's maybe as close as we get mm -hmm. you know but that's there the, there is the acknowledgement there and there is the understanding there and what I think he's showing me in that moment in his way because because for him I think he's like look my childhood was really rough too. He had a rough, he had a very rough childhood. So I think mm -hmm. in that moment, he's giving me a lot of grace. He's basically saying, I understand the log is what happened. The log is the truth and you've carved mm -hmm. your statue out of it. And, you know, he's kind of basically kind of go with God with it. And what's nice is he, me and my mom just saw each other last week. And I think that's the important thing to him. He's like, the book is the book, but we still have us. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Isaac. And thank you for writing this wonderful, important book that I know is about to receive a whole lot of attention. Listeners, I have been speaking with Isaac Fitzgerald, author of Dirtbag Massachusetts, which is published by our friends at Bloomsbury. Isaac, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so, so much for having me. This was an absolute, absolute pleasure, Jason. Really appreciate it. Ridge Books is Raleigh's trusted community bookstore, hosting author events, book clubs, writing workshops, and more since 1984. Visit them in North Hills, Lassiter District in Raleigh, North Carolina, or online at www.quailridgebooks.com.